Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. So in this episode, I'm joined by Kyle Southern, who is a Democrat running for State House in District 59, and he was a alum of Vanderbilt, class of 07, and has a business that works with governments and nonprofits to improve public education. And my other guest is Joseph Williams, who is also a Vanderbilt graduate running as a Republican in District 56. Uh, both of them are student body presidents at Vanderbilt. Um, Joseph is the current board chairman of Strive Collegiate Academy. He's an attorney and he's the founding partner of the Peacefield Group, which is a legal and policy consulting firm. Well, thanks so much, guys, for coming on the podcast. Is there anything you want to add to that intro about your backgrounds? I imagine we'll get into that, but thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a native Tennessean, born and raised in Memphis, uh, but I've been here in Nashville for about a decade and a half, and I'm excited to come on your podcast. I'm a big fan. Well, thanks a lot. I wanted to get started a little bit. Of course, you're both first-time candidates, and one thing that stands out to me is that you have so much in common. Of course, you both went went to Vanderbilt. As Kyle pointed out, you're both double doors. You both have two degrees from Vanderbilt. Uh, you both have an education policy background. You're first-time candidates. Both of you are very involved in your respective churches. And so how did you guys end up running for state house at the same time, but one of you as a Republican, uh, Joseph, and uh, the other one, Kyle, as a Democrat? Do you want to talk a little bit about how that happened what what drew you joseph to the republican party yeah so i've i've been a republican my entire life um you know growing up in memphis and going to public schools there uh you know my my dad and my mom you know they follow politics they're active citizens they watch debates they always vote so i remember from the time i was three or four years old going behind the curtain and pulling the lever of the old manual machines and I've been fascinated with civic leadership and public and you know political leadership from the time I was young. Uh, I was drawn to the Republican Party uh, because I believe in you know personal liberty and freedom, and that the answer to a lot of our problems aren't always found in government. I believe government should do a few things really, really well and focus on those things, solving those problems that are kind of long-term problems facing society. But I believe, you know, decisions should be made by leaders as close to the people as possible because then they get their best representation. And then I also believe in kind of what Alexis de Tocqueville termed a strong civic society, those middling institutions. So nonprofits, rotary clubs, little league baseball, churches, uh, you know, small businesses that give back to the community and serve the community and provide good paying jobs to people there. You know, that's what has always drawn me to the Republican Party, and, and I'm excited to be running as a Republican right now because I believe we need a Republican Party uh, that takes conservative messages to people in every neighborhood, from every background, uh, in a persuasive and in a winsome way. And that's what I'm doing out there on the trail, and I'm really loving it. Uh, why, with so many things you have in common um, with Joseph, Kyle, why are you running as a Democrat? Sure. I have a little different story uh, from Joseph. I, I grew up similarly uh, in a pretty conservative culture, grew up really steeped in sort of Southern Baptist 
evangelical church politics. First came to Nashville as a college student uh, back in 2003. And I think like a lot of people, once you spread your wings a little bit and uh, are in a different environment, you start to sort of rethink things. This is all in the time of the Iraq War. And while I was in college, you had Katrina and NSA uh, surveillance and all these things that were sort of hitting us. And that was really a time, I think, where I made a, a shift rethinking a really conservative viewpoint, frankly, to being disillusioned with politics on the whole, and really was content to work in kind of research and advocacy in the education space for a while. But it was really, frankly, the, the rise of then-Senator Barack Obama that got me sort of reengaged. And I said, here's someone who's bringing a, a positive assertive message, as he would say, that we can believe in. And that got me really seeing value in reengaging in politics. I started encouraging friends to donate to a campaign. I was hosting fundraisers. I was very active in Middle Tennessee, which was not the most popular place for Barack Obama uh, then as it, is, uh, as it is now, but really saw him as a person who could inspire a lot of people to believe again in government as a force for social good. Also around this time, as you recall, our financial system was melting down and there were a lot of big challenges in the world. And it seemed like this was a moment where more than any other, it was a time for us to, to rally around a positive message and to see that you know, the banks, big private institutions were not positioned to get us back on track. Just because of the way the system is set up, that required... Um, strong leadership at the national level, and it required government to, to take leadership um, to get us back on track. And so that's why I decided uh, after finishing graduate school at, at Vanderbilt to go to D.C. and, and work in um, education research and trying to help local districts, state departments of education um, do the best that they could for their students. And that was a great time, but ultimately I felt drawn back to, to Nashville. But Really, that led me through, the, through that kind of period of the 2000s from being pretty staunchly conservative to not feeling like I had a home at all uh, politically to being a, a committed uh, person on the Democratic Party, seeing a real role um, for government, not to answer every question because it can't, but there are certainly issues and times where we need um, the government to take leadership and to make sure that we're taking care of the people, particularly those who are most vulnerable, um, who need it most. So my next question, and this one we'll start out again with with uh, Joseph, why now and why State House? And so you're running to replace Beth Harwell, who is running for uh, governor in District 56, which for those of you who don't know, includes Belmede and uh, Forest Hills. Both of your districts are in South Nashville, Kyle's district includes um, Antioch, for instance, but Joseph's yours is definitely the more affluent one. So basically, why are you running now? What what urged you to you know get off the sidelines now and run for state house? Uh, so Speaker Harwell has served District Fifty Six for thirty years, and she was the first female Speaker of the House in Tennessee state history. The last few of those years, she's running for governor. So when my wife and I started our firm last summer. I was meeting with people you know, all over Middle Tennessee and many of them in District 56, whether they live there and or work there. And a good number of people strongly encouraged me to consider running for Speaker Harwell's seat. 
I was not looking to run for political office in 2018. I have two young boys, a three-and-a-half-year-old and a now one-year-old at the time. He was newborn, uh, chairman of the board of a charter school, starting my own firm. I had a lot on my plate. In the political moment in which we find ourselves with a lot of divisiveness and toxicity and you know, leaders that are more interested in posturing uh, and throwing just bland talking points that don't mean anything— rather than actually rolling up their sleeves and doing hard work to solve problems. You have your problems. sleeves rolled up right now. My sleeves are currently rolled up, as, as are Kyle's. As are I Kyle's. Note that we so, yes, that is, that is very true. <laughs> and to get in there and actually solve problems and not just talk about short-term, kicking the can down the road, not just you know riling up um, people of one or both parties, but actually want to solve problems in a pragmatic way building coalitions. You know, I, I like to say on the trail, uh, it's a twist on an old President Reagan quote that, you know, we may disagree about 80% of the things, but that doesn't mean we can't work together to solve 20% of the problems. That That's a big deal. And as people encouraged me to consider running, and I was talking to people all across the district, from Forest Hills to Oak Hill, Creve Hall, Bell Mead, Green Hills, South Nashville, that's what I hear. And that is what I hear as I'm, you know, I've knocked on thousands of doors already and I'm going to knock on thousands of doors more. And when I ask them, when someone's engaging me at the door, I like to hear what they care about. And I ask them, what is it you're looking for in an elected representative? I always hear some combination of the following things. Honesty, integrity, character. You're going to say what you mean and mean what you say, no matter who you're talking to. And once you're elected, you're more concerned about solving problems and doing what's right than getting reelected. It is stunning to me that that's what I always hear. And it's as if I wrote the script and handed it to them because those are the reasons why I wanted to run. I was tired of politicians that seemed like they were more interested in just staying there than getting anything done. And at the state legislative level, you know, someone asked me at a meet and greet one morning, Asked me, you know, what do you think your biggest obstacle will be once you're in office, assuming you win? And I said that there, you know, the system is established to pressure people to maintain the maintain the various broken status quos that exist in our system. And there will be a lot of people interested in ensuring that that stays the same. But I would I would rather fight to do what's right than just sit in office for a long time and not get anything done. Uh, and so, and that was the reason my wife and I decided to get in. It's a family decision. You know, when you have two young kids and when you're married, people always tell you this, like, you got to make sure your, your wife is all in. And my wife is, you know, much more impressive than I am. And so she's, and she is all in and, and we love knocking on doors together. We throw the boys in a wagon and knock on doors in neighborhoods. And, and I've been encouraged because of all of the reasons I wanted to get in, uh, to provide a different kind of political leadership to bring people together, to solve problems, um, to persuade people, you know, of things and to have real important discussions about things that matter. Uh, that's what, you know, the people whose doors I'm knocking on, who are going to be Republican primary voters in District 56, that's what they're looking for too. And, I, and I'm encouraged by that. They deserve hardworking representatives. So, Yeah, it's always a good sign when they're echoing back the same values. So, Kyle, of course, in your uh, district, Representative Sherry Jones is uh, retiring, and you're running in a in an intense primary battle against uh, Councilman Jason Potts. What led you to run this cycle, State House? 
Well, Representative Jones has been a great advocate uh, for our district, particularly on women and children's issues for a long time. Um, she's been a great uh, leader and a strong Democrat uh, representing our district for um, uh, for more than 20 years. So very thankful for her leadership. And uh, like Joseph mentioned, I had not necessarily seen myself going into elected office. Um, Doesn't everyone say that, though? That's, that's like one thing that kind of bugs me is like both of you, you're in your early 30s and you yeah. both say, oh, I never planned to run for public office. What's wrong with people saying, oh, I... I did plan on running. I'm excited about running. It's like we have a, a hesitancy to acknowledge, like, well, well we do want to lead. It's, well, not, it's not glamorous work uh, to begin with, and uh, it does require a lot of sacrifice. And so I think for people who, let's be frank, live pretty privileged lives like Joseph and I do, um, it's not necessarily the thing that you would first see yourself um, getting into. Um, but I think this is a time— that calls for uh, new leadership, new vision. Uh, there's a generational moment going on here as well where a lot of people, uh, like the incumbents in both of our districts who have been in their offices for um, a long time and served the state um, for a long time, are moving on or, or retiring. Um, and so it's really incumbent, I think, on folks in, in our generation who have, I think, a will to serve, uh, to step up and to try to break through the current kind of political morass that we're in and try to work for people and to, and to solve real problems. So that was something that really motivated me. And to answer your question from earlier, you know, I think that there was a seed planted. If you recall President Obama's farewell address when he said, if you're dissatisfied with what's going on politically, get a clipboard, get some signatures and run for office yourself. And I didn't necessarily decide that night, yeah, let's go run. <laughs> but I think I thought if there's an opportunity where I might be of service to the community, um, that's something that I might think about. And as Representative Jones stepped out uh, and, and decided to retire, I filed my paperwork later that day, actually, on the filing deadline. Uh, you want to be really thoughtful when you start going into this because it is a great commitment of time and, and resources and energy. And once I made that decision, you have to be all in. And so it isn't something that you, that you rush into. It's something that you have to be contemplative about, engage a lot of people that are closest to you, make sure you have the support that you'll need and that you'll have the energy to build enough to be successful. And you also have to be humble enough to know that this isn't about you. It's about the people that are your neighbors, um, and you have to go listen to what their concerns are. And you have to stand on a lot of front porches and hear what's on the minds of, of folks and make sure that they know that you know it's not about you, it's about them. And so that was something that uh, excited me to be able to, to get to know what's the concerns of, of my district and to find the best way that I could, bringing what I could, but also learning from them uh, to serve the folks that I call my neighbors. And I'll, I'll add to that, to your question, you know, what's so wrong <laughs> about saying this was, look, you right. know, this was something I was looking to do. I've always believed... You know, people have asked me if I was going to run for office previously, and, and going I, back to your days at at uh, Vanderbilt, right? When people find out that we were student body presidents, it's something naturally that people ask because mm -hmm. they think of us, especially from Vanderbilt, in that role—public service, serving people, that kind of thing. And and whenever people used to ask me, my wife used to always joke. My wife, who was also a double door, uh, 
both Vandy undergrad and Vandy Law School, which she used to joke, oh, I'll, I'll let Joseph run for political office, for school board when he's 75 years old, just to get him out of the house. <laughs> yep. um, and, and my honest answer, though, is I believe two questions need to be answered before you make a decision to run for office. I think the first question is, are people seeking you out? Because I believe public service is a calling, and it's not a calling in that you call yourself and say, I want to, I think I should represent people. The people should somewhat organically see that you're involved, that you've volunteered in campaigns, and you are, you know, pol- you think about policy and how to help people in politics and public service, and they should seek you out and ask you to do that. And, and so that's one thing. And I know that happened with both of us from our respective parties and people in the districts. That happened. The second question is you look at everyone else running, and if you think you mm-hmm. would be a better representative, for District 56 for me or District 59 for him than everyone else running, then you should get in because you have been sought out. You believe you would be a harder worker and a better representative um, for what, you know, the Tennessee state legislature needs in this moment and for what, more importantly than that, what the individuals in your district who will elect you are looking for in a representative in the state legislature in that moment. And then you enter the right race so that sounds right going into education considering that is kind of your for both of you your most formulated and kind of strongest policy background um i i know joseph you were involved in teach for america you taught for two years at white's creek high school taught taught history and then um for you kyle you have an education policy background, masters from from uh, Vandy, and that's been the work that you've been engaged in. What progress can be made at the state level in education, and specifically, what are some things that you could accomplish in the legislature that would have more of an impact on student outcomes than you could have as a teacher? Well, we live in a state that persistently underfunds its education system statewide. So, one thing that I think that people need to fight for is to make sure we're providing the resources that our teachers and principals across the state need to make sure that their students can reach their full potential. So that's something that I want to fight for is making sure that those resources are available. Apart from that, we know that teachers have the biggest in-school influence on the outcomes of students. And so to make sure that we have conditions and compensation and support and training and preparation for those teachers to make sure that we have the best possible people in front of every classroom across the state. Um, and for me, to fight as hard as I can to make sure that's true in the 59th district uh, and in Nashville. So we live in a, a state that's made a lot of good progress, frankly, um, on education, but we haven't seen what I would call greater equity coming. The, these persistent gaps across race and income and a variety of other demographic groups is really troubling. And the fact is that we just can't get to where we need to be as a state until we really confront those persistent gaps and challenges and how we treat uh, different student groups. So that means we have to have sort of what I would think of as a, an all-in approach to making sure that we're recruiting a diverse population of teachers that looks like our students, which is a never more diverse population across the state and particularly uh, here in Nashville and in Middle Tennessee. We have to make sure that we have strong principles who are in a position to create good cultures where those teachers stay. 
And then, as I mentioned earlier, we have to make sure that there are the resources available that um, they can be the best that they can for those students. So those are things that I think uh, we all need to work on. And um, I would expect that as a legislator, I would find people uh, on both sides who would be uh, willing to engage on all those issues because they are so evidently and critically important for the future of our state, its economy, and for, frankly, our democracy. As a former civics teacher, I love that last point, um, that for our democracy and for you know civic society like I talked about earlier, um, one of the things that drew me to Strive Collegiate Academy, the charter school in Davidson County, where I've had the honor to serve as chairman of the board, was the double focus on literacy and leadership. The idea that literacy means more than just being able to read. There are multiple facets of literacy that are vitally important. You know, as a, as a former social studies teacher, civic literacy, for example, is extremely important. When, when more people can name a judge on American Idol than can name a justice of the Supreme Court, something has gone wrong. We, we should all be able to agree with that. Um, but then leadership is also important. Are we developing lifelong leaders that can develop and go back into their neighborhoods and communities and cities and states and lead in a significant way to make a big impact and help solve those problems? And that's why education is the key to kind of unlocking all of that various um, forms of opportunity. You know, you're, you asked the question, you know, why in the Tennessee State Legislature instead of teaching in the classroom? And, um, you know, I often tell the story when people say, you know, why are you running? I will say, you know, the first year of teaching is always difficult. You're writing new lesson plans every night. You're teaching in a, you know, one of the lower performing schools in Metro Nashville Public Schools. It's difficult and it's tricky and you're trying to keep your head above the water. And luckily I was able to have a lot of success in posting, you know, historic uh, scores on AP U.S. history exam and, you know, the U.S. history state tests and things like that. But, I, you know, I didn't teach and I'm not running for office because of statistics. Data matters. Data can inform our decision making. But behind those statistics of those scores were kids with names and faces and backgrounds and things that kept them up at night and hopes and dreams for the future. That's why I'm running for office. The second year of teaching for me was actually more psychologically difficult than the first because I had lesson plans. I had my wits about me. I was, I was able to build off of that and improve that. But I also had the time and mental energy and capacity to think about the various broken governmental and non-governmental societal structures that had failed those kids. For my students that had done everything they had ever been asked to do in life, in the schools they'd been in. And they had had good teachers that loved them and worked hard for them. And they had loving parents that wanted them to succeed in life. But they had been a part of an educational system where they did everything they were asked to do. And that's why they were sitting in my 11th grade AP U.S. history class and they couldn't read and write on third or fourth grade level. Something had gone horribly wrong. And Kyle's exactly right. We've made huge gains. Moving from the mid-40s to the mid-30s is due to bipartisan leadership of our last couple of governors. It's due to people who are Democrats and Republicans in the state legislature and in civic society who've worked hard. But we can't be satisfied in the mid-30s. We can't be satisfied that less than half of our third graders can read on grade level, which makes them 12 times less likely to graduate on time. And it's what our prison systems use to project how many prison beds they're going to need decades into the future. Something has gone horribly wrong. And we can't continue growing as a state 
economically, you know, societally, any metric you can think of uh, without doing that. And, you know, I, and I know Kyle was not saying this, but a third of our state budget goes to education, which means it's really important. You know, your money lets you know where your priorities are. But I also know that less than half of the money actually makes it to the classroom level to make an impact on students. And that is, you know, that's something we need to solve so that we attract the best talent of teachers, so that we attract the best talent as, with school leaders, because the two biggest things that decide whether a student is as successful, as Kyle said, is teachers and then principals and school leaders. And we need to attract and keep that top talent here in Tennessee and incentivize um, those individuals to go work and serve in communities that need it most to close that, those equity gaps Kyle talked about. I agree. I'll only add that Joseph alluded to our progress on you know, student assessment outcomes, but we're still in the 40s on teacher compensation. And that resonates, I think, particularly in, in Nashville at a time when our cost of living here is increasing so rapidly. fact is that a lot of people that are in our schools teaching can't afford to live in the neighborhoods where they're teaching. They can't afford to live in Nashville. And there's a great value in having your teachers be deeply embedded in your community. And so when we're expecting our teachers, one, to work in their schools from six in the morning till six at night and then fight traffic for an hour home and then work for two or three hours when they get back, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. And people come into teaching with a great passion for kids and making sure that they can do all they can. But the fact is that until we solve the problem of honoring their work and as professionals that they are and get them to a place where they can be deeply embedded in our communities uh, for the long term, I think that a lot of these challenges will persist. So getting back to the one or a couple of specific things that you would seek to accomplish in education as a legislator, Joseph, it sounded like you're concerned about the percentage of funds that actually makes it to a classroom versus spent on overhead and administration. And Kyle, it seems like you're focused on teacher pay, principal pay, and when those are related things. But kind of what is one specific thing that you would hope to accomplish? I would say, you know, the thing I talked about the most on the campaign trail and, and all other policies come down from that is I want to make sure that every parent and every family has an opportunity to send their child to a school, every single child they have, to a school where they can thrive. You know, I talk about Jack, my three-and-a-half-year-old, and Henry, my one-year-old. I would like to believe that whatever school I send Jack to, Henry can also go. But, you know, I, my younger sister has special needs. She's developmentally delayed and has some behavioral impulsive things. And so she needed, and I witnessed this firsthand growing up as the older brother of a sister with significant special needs, she needed various things at different levels of her development to allow her to thrive. Sometimes that existed in the public schools. Sometimes that existed in private schools, and she bounced back and forth and things like that. I, I met a gentleman at a door a couple weeks ago, and he talked to me about his son who has some pretty severe disabilities. And he was told by a public school leader that um, they just didn't have what he needed. But Curry Ingram did, but Curry Ingram costs a lot of money. Curry Ingram costs per year about the amount of money that Kyle and I paid for Vanderbilt back in the day. Vanderbilt now you know, costs even more than that. I asked him and I said, 
how is that going? He goes, well, that goes great. And like, luckily I'm someone of means, like it means I'm not going to have a college fund for him, but we can afford it. You know, he lives in Green Hills. He goes, we can afford that. We're having to sacrifice somewhat, but it's doable. But he said, I'm concerned about the families out there that can't do that, that can't get what their child needs for them to thrive. And so they're in a school that doesn't work for them. So my number one thing is, and there are lots of various policies that stream down from this, but I want every family, I want the single mom of three, I want you know individuals that live in rural communities, urban communities, I want them to be able, have access for a school that can provide a high-quality, life-changing education for every single one of their kids. Like, that's my number one goal. Everything else comes down from that. And I, I, I'd be more than happy to talk about some of those other things, but I'll let, I'll let Kyle field the question. Well, it sounds well. like that's kind of a school choice issue, I, uh, potentially yeah, I mean, vouchers. I, I like to talk about it as, like, parent choice and family choice uh, because they're, they're the ones, you know— making the choice for what works for them. It could be a traditional public school. It could be a public charter school. It could be an independent school. It could be homeschooling, you know, with, with certain other, like, tutoring and, you know, networks involved. It could be any of those things. I I want what works, and, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I have the answers for what every child needs. I think right. parents and grandparents and community members, they are in the best position to make those choices, so... I'm not the first person to say this, but, you know, we can't be an it city without an it school system. And we've seen this tremendous growth. Lots of folks are moving to Nashville. But the fact is that if you're looking to make sure that your kid has access to great education and you look across your immediate surroundings, look across the system and you don't see it, I don't think you're going to stay here um, forever. So if we want to maintain our current velocity as we're growing um, and as we're growing wealth in this community, we have to make sure that we have a school system that can support all of us uh, across the, the city and across the county. In, in my perspective, schools work best when they're hubs for their communities and when the community can surround it and be involved. When that becomes a place where everyone knows that they can go and feel welcome, um, that's critically important uh, in my district in creating inclusive environments. We have a very diverse population of the 59th district. Uh, and that comes with a lot of, of service needs. And so how we can bring in nonprofit partners, whether it's great groups like Communities in Schools Tennessee that are doing great work in, in schools uh, here or faith-based groups or others, how can we make those hubs of excellence all across my district, all across the city, all across the state? That's when you, I think, have a true acknowledgement that there's great work going on in the schools. We have great educators doing that work every day. But if children are showing up hungry, if they're showing up with um, emotional and, and social support needs that we're not meeting, then that child is not set up to meet their full potential as a learner. So having that kind of community-based approach and leveraging the great talent and resources that are in the broader community for our students and for our schools is going to make a real difference and an impact, not just on the school system, but on our economy and on uh, the future of our city. And so... That's really something that will, will guide me in thinking about how do we make sure that those wraparound supports are available for every student to make sure that they can be as successful as they can be. Yeah, I, I agree with Kyle. I think that you know my mom has been a public school first grade teacher in Memphis for decades, and she kind of carved out a niche for her school as the first grade teacher that would have all of the English language learners. 
uh, and she worked with retired teaching friends and church neighborhood churches to host at night and weekends English classes and you know having translators to help fill out various paperwork and things so that these students and their families could learn English and be given a chance to succeed and I think you know I as a candidate you know I'm I'm, of course, going to brag on my mom, <laughs> and there are a lot of teachers like her out there, uh, but we need to do a better job of, you know, scaling that model out. So every school has that place for, you know, every single student, no matter where they come from and no matter what their background, to feel welcome and to get the support they need to be given a chance to thrive and succeed. I can't let you brag about your mom without bragging about mine. That's true, Kyle. Uh, my That's mom true. is- I love her. Uh, she's is, great. She's great. She, uh, she's a registrar at actually the high school that she attended. And I would say about once a week, she'll send me usually an all caps email about a student challenge, about an issue, whether it's working with a, a student who doesn't have English fluency or who, is, who might be uh, undocumented or a host of other issues. And she reaches out to me. She's like, you're an education policy nerd. Like, tell me, how do I fix this? But- the fact is, she shouldn't have to reach out to her son a state away. She should be able to access uh, the resources and answers that she needs to serve those kids. So it's a problem not just for us. It's it's all across the country. But I think one thing that's a good motivator for getting involved at the at the state level is to make as much of a difference as you can for your community and for, for Tennessee. Don't you just love all caps texts or emails from your mom? Yeah. Isn't that just the best? I love anything that my mom does. <laughs> good answer, Kyle. That is a good answer. So moving on, one question that fascinates me, and it's one reason that I started this kind of long-form podcast, and I think it's incumbent on any leader to have this ability to learn and, and to grow. What is one issue that each of you have changed your mind on at some point, and what caused that? I'll go first. Um We'll keep it in education. When I was in elementary school, as a public school student here in Tennessee, there was a big focus and a big push, and I understand why, to we need to create an education system that allows every student to go to college, a four-year college or university. And I agree with that goal, and I think that's an important goal, but I think it's an incomplete goal. I understand why when our education system started, public education started during the industrial era, to kind of create, you know, an industrial training ground to create individuals that can then go into factories and, and go to one company, whether, you know, it was the industrial era or the service era later on in the post-war, Cold War environment. I understand why that structure existed, but that's no longer sufficient. And so part of what that 80s, 90s, early 2000s push was, was, okay, we need, and it was an acknowledgement that we have huge and significant educational inequity in our system. And we need to make sure we are improving education so everyone has a chance to succeed at a four-year college or university. In doing that, though, there was a, there was a stripping out of uh, technical training and vocational training. And like a lot of things in politics, things Anything are, that you can't test. Yeah, right. That things are... Things will often break down in politics in which you view politics as a zero-sum game uh, with false dichotomies, and, and you strip nuance out of it to say, you know, and so I kind of believed that, and when I was at White's Creek High School and taught there, 
that was still kind of in that era of we need to take these things out so we're focused on you know college readiness which is important i think we do need to prepare every child to succeed at a four-year college or university but again i think it's incomplete and it's a false dichotomy through my experiences there through my experiences as a lawyer the last few years and working with charters and working with other nonprofits and just also as an economics major from vanderbilt seeing how the economy is changing at a rapid pace where people are you know people of our generation the three of us change jobs every 3.3 years that number is decreasing at a rapid pace and spreading out to every generation so it has implications for workforce development a whole array of things but where i've evolved and changed is the idea of i used to say yeah we need to take you know for educational inequity purposes in order to give every child the best chance to succeed at college we need to take those things out of high schools i i disagree with that now because the fact of the matter is a lot of my students who had children during high school or had children soon thereafter had Maybe they didn't have any children, but they were the oldest in a family of five with a single mom, and they needed to help provide for the family. If they were given the vocational training, a partnership with a private um, you know, organization that could provide apprenticeship, and they're graduating with the ability to soon be getting a good-paying job, paying $60,000 a year in an industry, in what would be considered a technical or a vocational industry that you know, we need more of and we have a shortage of and therefore the pay is higher and significant instead of taking on a lot of student loan debt. Why would we not do that? And it's again, it's not an either or. They could they could go to college, a community college, and take that training. There are all sorts of partnerships. You know, TCAT here in Tennessee is is very strong. But there there it's easy to forget about the dignity of all types of work. And it's easy to say, you know what, we want every student to be able to dream to be anything they want to be. And I agree. But what if their dream is to be an entrepreneur and start a company like Lee Company, for example, here in Middle Tennessee, whose leader is running for governor, that provides hundreds of jobs and is extremely successful and becomes a community leader? Like, why would we strip someone of the opportunity to do that by viewing things in false either or dichotomy? economies instead of both and. So that's one thing. A second thing I've changed my mind on is as I've learned more about um, occupational licensing regimes, you know, in concept, it's like, yes, we want everyone that has any job to be competent and safe uh, and successful. So like, yes, let's make sure people who are practicing and holding themselves out in certain professions are successful. But as cosmetology, I, for instance, yeah, that, cosmetology that got a lot of or, attention. Yeah, it has gotten a lot of attention. But in actuality, what has happened is these regulatory schemes instead stop people like many of my students from being able to start businesses and grow businesses to be successful because wages are um, unfairly inflated because there are these competitive hurdles for some of my students to start their own business and do this thing that they're amazing at. You know, something has gone horribly wrong when, you know, it takes an EMT whose job is to literally restart your heart and keep you alive, you can become an EMT in Tennessee in six months. But if you want to be an auctioneer, it takes more than two years and significant more training. Something is skewed in a society when we have a structure like that. It takes a long time to learn how to talk that fast. You know, I, I'm a fast talker, but not that fast. <laughs> 
Joseph talked um, at just the right pace uh, a lot about the the transition, <laughs> well the transition from high school to post secondary, and, and then to work. And I'm really passionate about about those issues as well. And that's you know I went, why I went to uh, pursue a PhD in higher education because I was really interested in how you can make sure there's a smooth transition as possible across that spectrum. And so a lot of my time and uh, research uh, as a education wonk and, and nerd has been thinking about what it takes to be successful, getting enough counselors in schools uh, where there can be enough to focus exclusively on college readiness and what comes next for those students. That is critically important, particularly in a place where guidance counselors can have a caseload of five, six, seven hundred kids, and they're also dealing with testing and all kinds of administrative things, and, and that kind of college prep part of the counselor's role can really get diminished just because of the demands on their time. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that and, and working on that. But what I've had to realize is that, as Joseph alluded to this time in the classroom, if a student's coming into 10th grade at a second grade reading level, we've got a real critical problem at the early part of the spectrum. And so one thing that I've had to learn a lot more about and, and become much more deeply invested in is that early learning side um, to make sure that from the very youngest age, our kids are getting the most resources that they need to be set up to have those fundamental building blocks to be successful later on. And when you live in a state where fewer than half of third graders are on reading level, you've really got to think about high-quality early learning programs and to make sure that that kind of base level of support is there so that all students are successful later on. So I think one thing that I've had to sort of own is a much deeper commitment to the early learning side of that spectrum to make sure that every student has access to a high-quality learning program early on that gets them ready to then be successful uh, in that transition from secondary and then on through into their uh, careers. So moving on with another thing that you guys have kind of learned and uh, potentially could impart this wisdom on other people out there who are considering running, as first-time candidates, what is one thing that you know now about running for office, about yourself, about campaigning, fundraising. What is one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you declared? I love asking that question of people, no matter like what the walk is like. You know, right. What do you wish you would have known in my shoes mm-hmm. uh, that you know now? Kyle, you want to field that one first? Well, you, you find out all sorts of things about yourself that uh, you didn't know that you had. I will say that the fundraising side of this is is difficult. And in a Citizens United world, uh, it's a reality that, that campaigns face. And so being able to think about ways to frame this as really important for people to invest, not just in you, but in the idea um, that we need new leaders, new leadership, new vision, and to be able to communicate that uh, in a really strong way that resonates with people and makes them feel invested in that movement is something that um, I've had to dig deep and, and think about a lot, finding that part of yourself to say, this is really important and I need your support. And beyond that, I think there's an opportunity for you to have a real positive impact on this community. Finding that part of yourself and being willing to make some pretty hard asks of people who are pretty close to you is a real challenge. And we're being successful to date, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to have that support, um, but it's been a a challenge to work through, and I think we're, we've got good momentum. I'm really grateful for everyone that is is supporting us, but it's definitely something that you have to to work at. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um, that's definitely where there is a significant learning curve if you've never done direct fundraising. 
for anything before. Uh, but it's also it's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing to ask people to give their hard-earned money to you for your campaign for state house, um, which as Kyle alluded to earlier is is not some glamorous U.S. Senate race or statewide <laughs> office, right? And so to get people, you can also say actually <clears throat> state government matters a whole whole lot in your day-to-day life, and as as much noise as there is in Washington, what's happening at the Capitol downtown in Nashville is probably going to have a much more direct impact on your life going right. forward. So owning that message and communicating right. that is real critical. Which is a too. huge reason both of us are running. That's right. And that is a significant part of our message. And I also know uh, that both of us are bringing a lot of new people into the political process. And, you know, I, I don't know everyone that's given money to Kyle, but I can imagine it's similar to me in terms of a lot of people have made their first donation to any political campaign ever mm-hmm. to my campaign people that are disenchanted and they are looking for a better type of leader you know that appeals to our better angels instead of our worst instincts there is there is that and it's about communicating that and doing it the other thing i would say that i wish i would have known now and everyone said it to me everyone i talked to said it to me but i didn't realize how correct they would be is you can't prioritize enough starting early enough knocking on doors and meeting voters um, that is the most effective way you can use your time. That is, for me, as an extrovert and as someone that just loves making new friends, my wife loves to joke that I come home every night with 100 new friends to tell her about. But it really is, for me, it is the most encouraging thing I can do, and it's the most effective thing to do because you're meeting the voters that you know are going to show up to the polls. Um, and these are people that may not be keeping up with politics all the time, and that's a good thing because they are taking care of their parents and their kids and their grandkids and they're serving in their churches and in their local communities and nonprofits. They are serving their communities well and they are keeping our community strong and together. It's knocking on their doors, asking them what they're looking for in an elected leader um, that is the best use of your time. So for me, I wish I would have started knocking doors even earlier. Yeah, that, that time management is so critical and you have to have almost a religious devotion to just what Joe said, which is meeting your voters, hearing what's important to them, offering your vision, but also offering your ear, even more importantly. And lots of things come to your email box. Lots of things come to your desk of like, oh, here's this really cool event that's going on. Or, oh, I love that guy who's running for that office over there. I'd love to go support him. Or here's here's a uh, female candidate we've needed for so long in this district. I want to go support that. But then you need people around you to say like, Yes, support them, cheer for them. What are you doing to meet your voters today and hear what's important to them? And you're like, yeah, that's the business. And making sure you're doing that is as mission one above all others is, is the most important thing. And so making sure that your schedule and the way you allocate your time reflects that um, is a real challenge with this sort of, uh, to use your term, a sounding board of things that are coming out to you. Uh, that, that can easily distract you, but you have to stay focused on your mission, which is figuring out how best to serve the folks that live around you. Hopefully people will find those informative and that there are people listening who are considering running themselves in a future cycle. I want to close out with a favorite question. What is one book that has kind of shaped the way that you think and that you would urge others to read? Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin is probably the best book that I've ever read. <laughs> it took me a year and a half. It's a dense volume, <laughs> but uh, it's sort of a 
five-part biography of Abraham Lincoln and a cabinet that he assembled of intense personalities, all of whom at the first thought they could do the job better than him. And he came and said, we're at this really critical time uh, for our country, and I need you to come subvert your ego and do the work of salvaging this country. No, I, Team of Rivals is phenomenal. Mine would be, I'm always tempted in these situations to go with Ben Sass's book, which is a good read, but um, I'm actually going to go with Yuval Levin's The Fractured Republic. It is a discussion of American individualism and individual rights and freedom, but also the importance of strong communities and kind of the opportunity that lies ahead for America to tackle a lot of its biggest problems by looking at state legislatures and local governments and allowing them to kind of build a diverse array of strong, vibrant communities. Uh, and, and it's part history, part you know political science, economics, sociology, and then it ends with kind of a, a plan for the future of like, we, we do have a fractured country, but we can look at our past, we can look at our unique structure and we can say these things that we often talk about being in tension, like I said earlier, about dichotomies, can actually work well together to help solve our problems um, and bridge those divides uh, if we're willing to, again, roll up our sleeves like Kyle and I have, both, <laughs> both literally and figuratively, uh, to work together to do those things and focus on what should be focused on, cutting through the noise. And, and so. before we end, I'd only take one slight issue with you're mentioning the, the fractured country that we have. And that and that's an easy narrative on television. But as I go around and, and talk to people, um, as frankly, you can look at polls of what's on people's minds across a lot of hot button issues. I actually increasingly don't buy that we're as polarized and fractured as you see on television. Agree. I think almost, you know, well, broad majorities of people agree on some really intense and what we are led to believe are polarizing issues. fact is that we don't have politics that are as good as our people. And so one reason to get into this is to work toward a, a politics that are deserving of the people that we serve. And that's something that, that really motivates me to get into this. Agree. Very well said. And I think you too are both some of those people getting in for the right reasons. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed this discussion. And hopefully listeners will find their way to supporting uh, one or perhaps uh, in an odd way, both of your <laughs> campaigns. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I really great. appreciate it. It's great. Good to see you.